Welcome to WAMACAST. My name is Sarah Donahy, and I am the education curator for the Wingate Museum of Art at Hendricks College. Our guest today is Matthew Lopas. He is a professor of art here at Hendricks College and is presently the chair of the art department. Courses Matthew teaches include multiple levels and styles of drawing and painting, including digital drawing and a studio course on the history of materials and techniques of painting. Matthew has a BA from the Residential College of the University of Michigan, a BFA from the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, and an MFA from Yale. His paintings have been shown across the country and internationally. He is married to Susan Clark, also an artist, and has three children. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, Matthew, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? I was born in uh, south side of Chicago in Hyde Park, and uh, my parents both went met at University of Chicago. My mom's a French teacher, and my father was a uh, physician. I grew up in Evanston, near near Lake Michigan, and um, I uh, went to high school there. You know, what else do you want to know about? I give you the whole narrative. <laughs> that works. Uh, so, did you have much exposure to art when you were a child? Oh yeah. Yeah, a, a lot of exposure. I mean, my grandparents took me to the Art Institute. They were, my mother was a lifetime member of the Art Institute through her parents. And uh, my grandparents would take me there on weekends. We did, you know, lots of times at the Art Institute. And I took one, I took a figure drawing course there in high school. And so were you, did you feel like you were naturally inclined toward drawing or? Um, did that really develop later? Uh, I always drew. I mean, okay. obsessively even. But I didn't start to think of myself as an artist until much later. Also, my mother was an artist. She was a sculptor. She ah. was never a professional at it, but she uh, she was very good at it. Uh-huh. Nice. And so uh, tell me, I understand that you you majored in Chinese studies. How did that interest come about? And then... When did you transition into uh, more formally studying art? Well, uh, I was interested in in um, Asian culture in general. I'd say I, I took karate in high school, and um, and then I got really into Tai Chi and really mm. into you know Taoism. Just reading about it in high school, and it's just it was my sort of group of friends. We were all into Tai Chi. This pretty seriously. I mean, we did it a lot. And then when I went to University of Michigan, I enrolled in this thing called the Residential College, which was a smaller school within, a, you know, within a large, large school. And they had this language requirement. You had to become mm. fluent in a language, you know, not unlike Hendrix, really. And um, I didn't want to take the more, the more expected languages. My mother was a French teacher, and I kind of never took to that. So I kind of leafed through the Hendrix, I mean, through the uh, Michigan catalog, and I saw that they had Chinese. I'm like, oh. I didn't really know anything about the language as a language. I said, oh, I'll, I'll take that. What the heck, you know? And huh. it was kind of a, a very rude awakening. Super, dif <laughs> super difficult. And I did not know that the University of Michigan Chinese program was one of the oldest and the best in the nation. Okay. So they were, they were really. They were serious. They were serious. And uh, I did not do well at first. I did very poorly. 
and I had always done well at mm -hmm. school. And so it was just like a big challenge for me. And so I just threw myself into it. And that led to majoring in Chinese. What, uh, what helped you overcome that challenge? Did you have particular techniques? Was there a aha moment for you? How did you, was it just perseverance? Brute force. I mean, there was no aha. There was no technique other than raw memorization. Mm -hmm. Chinese as a language requires a lot of memorization and Chinese, as I discovered later in a culture is, as a culture is sort of based on that Chinese people have a facility for memorization. That's just trained way beyond we do what we are used to. And so, you know, you, when I was, we were asked, you know, okay, you have to learn, uh, you know, these, these, uh, 10 characters a day, plus, you know, their combinations. That's, that's 20 or 30, you know, every day, five days a week. So that's a, just a massive number of, uh, of work. And I eventually actually burned out on it. It was too much. Mm. I finished the degree, but it was just like, ultimately it was too much rote memorization for me. Okay. Do you still speak Chinese and use, use those skills? Uh, no, I mean, it formed who I am. I spent a year living yeah. in China, but, uh, and I eventually did get pretty good at it. But once I moved on from that, mm -hmm. I really didn't use it at all after that. I mean, I remember a few words now, if I went there and I would like to go back at some point, I think a lot of it would come back. Sure. Sure. So tell me about that year living in China. Was that part of the undergraduate program or was that a separate experience? No, that was a uh, part of the undergraduate program. It was 1986. We were the second cohort of Westerners to go to China. So it was very, very new. And, um, oh, it was just unbelievable how different a culture it was and how um authoritarian really i mean we were monitored very very closely in our comings and goings through the dorm there was a person who sat in the doorway and sort of took note when where we were going if we brought a friend in a chinese friend you know or of course we're just trying to make chinese friends you know they would be noted that mm. so and so is hanging out with the foreigners right there were no, there were a lot of foreigners there but not a lot of westerners there right. were a lot of Africans there, which was really interesting because China was part of the non-aligned movement at that time. And so they brought in, gave a lot of African scholarships. But it was, uh, I spent, so I did that, you know, I was enrolled in school for a semester. Then I went with a friend to Taiwan, hmm. which was, which was really different. I remember when I got to my, to my, I don't know where I was staying in some like little hotel or something. I was talking to some people and I had a red shirt on and these Chinese guys were like, making fun of me for wearing a red shirt. I'm like, what's the deal with a red shirt? It's like, you know, that's communist, right? And so it, would, it was just a very different environment from mainland China, obviously. I sure. made friends, I had, a, I had like all these different jobs. I'm still in touch with some of the people from Taiwan, you know, through Facebook to this day. And then after that, I traveled around the nation of mainland for by myself, and that was just ultimate freedom and fun. I was mm. good at Chinese. I went to Tibet, you know, once people, once Chinese people realized you could actually speak Chinese, it was like a floodgate. So you, you spent the year there mm -hmm. and when was that in your undergrad degree? Was that like your junior year or? Yeah, that was my junior year of what ended up being a five-year program because okay. I, I lost some credits my second semester there because I went there for a semester, but I took, got a semester's worth of credits, but was there for a year. 
So I okay. stayed, stayed in school for five years. Okay. And so then when you returned to, to Michigan um, and you finished the degree, had you taken undergraduate art classes? You had, you had the, the course at the Institute when you were in high school. Had you done any art courses while you were uh, doing the, the Chinese studies major? Yeah, I took a few. I took a, like a drawing course as an elective. I took a sculpture course and I was, you know, very engaged in those courses. I was engaged in all my, my courses just because I like to learn and all that. And I'm a good student, mm -hmm. but I was really into those courses, but I still at that point didn't think of myself as, as an artist. I was just somebody, some people I think thought of me as an artist, but I was just like taking these courses and enjoying myself mm -hmm. basically. What did you think you would do with with your degree in Chinese studies? I mean, were you thinking future oriented or were you really just uh, exploring that interest and getting your degree because that's what people were supposed to do? Or kind of what were you yeah. thinking as you were an undergraduate in terms of what you wanted to be doing? Well, I'm I'm Jewish and I was raised really valuing just education for education's sake. And my parents never never put pressure on me for, you know, how am I going to earn a living? What are you going to, what are you going to do with your life? It was always, what are you going to study in college? There's all these interesting things. So when I went to college, I mean, naive as it was, I didn't even think about how I would earn a living. I was just taking courses that was, that were interesting to me. I never how took liberating. a course. Yeah. I never took a course that wasn't interesting to me. Right. I would, if there was some requirement, I would talk my way out of it and just find an interesting way to do it. And but I eventually realized that, oh, you know, I am going to have to earn a living, right? And so I started thinking about what you would do with a Chinese degree and talking to some of my peers about what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And, and um, first of all, by the time I was, say, a junior or senior, I was getting decent at Chinese, but I was really realizing that, that I did not have a natural facility for it. I noticed mm -hmm. some people that really had a serious natural facility and they were much better at, at it than me, right? doing okay but you know these people were really taken off so i noticed that and then the jobs in, that they were getting into was like state department uh intelligence you know cia kind of stuff um there was people would interview on campus and um and business you know international trade those and there was academics right academics I was getting burnt out on because just the amount of work in chinese i was not going to go work for the cia definitely not just because I did not want to be involved in um, things that might involve killing somebody, put it that way. And, <laughs> Seems reasonable. And, and uh, I just wasn't interested in money for money's sake, which is why, what you would have to do if you're going to go into international business. And so I basically didn't know what I, I basically said, no, I'm not going to do any of that. And so mm -hmm. I kind of um, just sort of kept going at my sort of happy-go-lucky self, you know, got a job in a restaurant, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. So I rejected so then, it basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so then how did you decide to go ahead and, and pursue the BFA? Well, um, I was working at a restaurant and in Ann Arbor, there's this thing called the art fest art fair. And it was this huge summer art fair. And, um, and I was working outside at this and I saw all these like, you know, Thousands of artists really come to Ann Arbor, start selling their stuff. I was like, look at all these people. They're actually, you know, to me, art was always sort of in the museum or something in the classroom, right? Mm -hmm. And there's all these people actually doing it. And I was like, wow, that's, you know, I didn't think I will, 
it was just kind of made a big impression on me. And then all my friends, I was very involved with this uh, group of theater people, very energetic, talented, incredibly talented people. My girlfriend was in this troupe, and they decided they all wanted to move to Chicago and start a theater troupe, which they did, an anarchist collective theater troupe, right? Wow. And so they were my friends, and I did a little backdrop work for them. And, um, and I just said, you know, I'm just going to take some classes at the Art Institute just because I feel like it, right? Mm-hmm. Just to see what happens. And it was kind of like a bomb went off in my, in my life. I mean, it was just like I was always a hard worker, but I became an extremely hard worker at that point. And it was just like I, did, I thought to myself, you know, maybe someday I could have a job teaching, but, but I, didn't, I was just like, I just have to do this. And, and I stopped, I stopped, I had, I did have for the previous couple of years, I did have some angst about what I was going to do for sure. And mm-hmm. then the angst just went away because I knew what I was going to do. Yeah. Wow. And were you focused specifically on drawing and painting or did you explore other medium or? I, I was attracted to sculpture and um, I took some sculpture classes, but I was focused on drawing and painting. Yeah, basically. There were a whole set of, of, of requirements, general studies requirements at the uh, Art Institute. And I was an older student, you know, and mm-hmm. I just used my sort of uh, pushiness to talk my way out of all the requirements because <laughs> I wanted to study painting and drawing, right? Okay. And so I talked myself out of the, the time arts requirement, the design requirement, all this stuff. Yeah. Did you go directly from the BFA to the master's program, or did you take some time in between? No, I, well, I, I took some time in between. I, I learned early on in my education at the School of the Art Institute. Some, I don't know, I don't know if this is still true, but I, I think it's, I, I think it's still true that only seven percent. This is the number I remember. It's probably a little different. Only seven percent of people who get BFAs in are actually practicing artists within a few yeah. years of graduating. You know, they go on and do different things, right? And and I knew that it was a really high hurdle to be a practicing artist. I did not want to go into uh, into architecture. I did not want to go into design. Um, I wanted to make my own work based on my own ideas, right? Mm-hmm. And so I ne- I'd heard people talk, and I needed to prove to myself that I could survive as an artist outside of school, you know, sort of spiritually and financially, mm-hmm. right? You know, spiritually meaning you need to maintain your inspiration, your work ethic without someone saying, you know, time to work in this class and, you know, support yourself and pay your rent, right? And so I, uh, I did not want to go directly on, even though I was, you know, sort of behind the normal schedule, you know, like I had a five-year undergraduate degree, then I spent two years at the Art Institute, I was, you know, older than most students by that point. But I also realized I learned that people who got MFAs tended not to go right out of undergraduate because graduate schools wanted to see that, you know, you have what it takes to be an artist outside of your teachers saying, do this assignment, right? Mm-hmm. So I spent, really, it wasn't that long. I spent a year working and making art and got myself a couple of shows and uh, produced a you know, a serious body of work sort of all by myself. Who were some of your artistic influences around that time? Were there particular artists that had an impact on how you were developing yourself or were you really 
kind of just drawing inspiration from within and from around you? Well, uh, I mean, sort of yes to all of the above. I was constantly looking at artists. I mean, just constantly going to shows in the vibrant art community in Chicago, wandering around the, the library, picking books off the shelf, uh, listening to my teachers. I had some fantastic teachers. I also spent a summer immediately after uh, the School of the Art Institute in Mexico. I went with a friend of mine, and we just went to his hometown in Jerez, Zacatecas, and uh, he was a painter, and we just kind of hung out and painted for the summer. And, um, you know, it was just another sort of great adventure. Yeah. And um, the light in Mexico really had a profound impact. I didn't realize, you know, like I'd heard people say, oh, the light matters as an artist, right? You know, like where you are. My, my color changed completely because of the light. And so oh. I, brought, I brought that back to Chicago, and I did a bunch of, you're asking the influences, I think it was the light in Mexico. So I did, mm-hmm. I did a bunch of paintings in Chicago that were kind of with Mexican light, mm-hmm. right? This kind of just very bright sunlight. And I just, you know, at that time of your life, it's just like every two weeks, there's a new artist to discover. So then when you started the master's program, did you have teaching in mind then? Or were you still thinking about, you know, uh, just pursuing the passion and and developing yourself? Well, developing myself for sure. And definitely thinking that I could teach. Okay. But, but at the, at the, um, at Yale, I discovered a whole new cohort and kind of person, Hmm. people that were you know, truly professional and that we're not going to mm-hmm. teach. They were not going to teach, right? They were going to make it in the art world. The art world in Chicago is, it exists, but it's absolutely nothing like the art world in New York. It's just nothing. There's just so many people. I mean, there's, I don't know how many tens of thousands of young artists in New York, all trying to get into galleries. And there's lots of galleries where people are making, you know, lots of money. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, people are making money, you know? and I guess I never really thought that I could be like really make a lot of money at it, you know, but I was just kind of just very impressed with that. So I started thinking myself more in terms of being more professional rather than academic. So you didn't necessarily feel any pressure yet to uh, to be making a living or you were really still just kind of following the passion of. Yeah. Yeah. I was following the passion. I guess I started feeling more the desire. Okay. Right? Like, oh, wow, you know, you could really do this. Mm-hmm. You know, you could, you could make a living at it. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you then, you, you finished the master's program. How did you start teaching? Where did that, what was, what was the very first class you taught or the very first experience you had where you thought, I, c- I could teach art? Well, I mean, I had a, I had a, a teaching assistantship. Okay. And, um, and so I had some experience like that. And when I was younger, I, I always helped the teacher in Tai Chi and karate. So, and then I would sometimes take over the class. So I had some teaching experience, you know, like that. But when I got out of um, Yale, I, I went to uh, the College Art Association um, uh, conference to look for a teaching job, right? And it was in New York, and so it was kind of easy to get to. And I went there, and I, and I ran into the... Uh, I ran into, this is a very negative story. I ran into the the head of the art school at the conference, the head of the Yale art school. I was like, oh, hey, how's it going? And he's like, sat down, started chatting, you know, it was sort of a, 
more personable situation because we were out, I was out of school, right? And he said to me, you know, it used to be in the old days, Bernie Chait, who ran the school, used to take all his students around the College Art Association and hold them, hold their hands and introduce them to people, walk them into interviews and say, you should hire this person. I'm just here to let people know that Yale doesn't do that anymore. That we're not wow. going to be, you know, the so-called Yale mafia, meaning that they're not going to help you at all. They didn't help us own. at all. And I was super pissed. And of course, I didn't get a job, right? Yeah. I applied for jobs, but I did not get a teaching job, right? Yeah. And I was like, well, you know, thanks for nothing. And then it's like, there was this expectation that, you know, you have a degree from Yale that, you know, you're going to get a job, right? Mm -hmm. And truthfully, there's a lot of resentment. You, you tell people, I got a degree from Yale. They're like, oh, what's well, George Bush's friend or something, you know? And, you know, I guess that was before Bush, but, you know, some president's friend or they think you have lots of money, right? When sure. you don't. And so my first job out of Yale was uh, what my job had been many times before, which was painting houses. I moved to New York City in Brooklyn and I got a job painting houses, which was really interesting. And to, from a people point of view, because there were just some really amazing people. I mean, artists like myself, just sort of tough people, immigrants. Um, you know, we, the main memory from that was just the commute. It was like, it was just like mm -hmm. hell. Unbelievable. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but uh, I did that. And then, so I moved in with my, um, my later wife, girlfriend. She, well, how did that work? We, she was living in Connecticut, Susan Clark, and I was living in Brooklyn and we sort of go back and forth. And, um, I went up to where she was living, which was kind of an area I would go there on weekends or whatever. And, got myself a gallery up there hmm. and that was kind of a real bedroom community for uh for uh wealthy new yorkers so it was a pretty good gallery mm -hmm. and then and then i i eventually moved in with her still painting houses up there and then got myself a uh couple of community art center teaching jobs okay. right where you're just it's the kind of thing like if, if, if enough people sign up, you know, five people sign up, it's not going to run. But if you've got 10 people that sign up, the course runs. Right. Okay. And so I had, I had, I had like, you know, one of those, then two of those and three of those. And I eventually had five of those things going at the same time. Right. And once I got to the point where I had, you know, more than a few of those, I quit um, painting houses. Okay. Which, which I was very happy about. Cause at that time it was like, you know, the Yale grad painting houses really <laughs> starts to wear on you. Right. Yeah. Then the te the teaching was um I had taught at that point I taught everything from little kids to high school kids to adults, right? All different kinds of classes. Uh-huh. Figure figure painting, uh I even did a materials and techniques course and I remember the first time I taught a materials and techniques course at the Washington Art Association in Connecticut. I was getting up there to lecture about I think how we would uh, make pastels, I think is what it was because we were making our pastels from scratch. I nearly fainted. Mm. <laughs> I mean, just from shyness. I mean, yeah. Really, you know, I was just so nervous to be like up there pontificating about uh, about materials and techniques. But uh -huh. they were very, very nice people. And, you know, they were adults and they could sort of see this young guy was just trying to figure it out. And um, they gave me a lot of space. And I did have a lot to offer in terms of, uh, you know, what I knew about art and everything. And so, you know, I just sort of got my... Sea legs. I, I got an adjunct teaching job at this place called Takeo Post in Waterbury. And okay. I taught taught design there. I didn't even I never studied design. 
never took a design class. But, you know, got out the textbook, read through the textbook, and just rewrote it basically myself uh-huh. and taught it, you know. And it was fun. It's hard. Yeah. It was fun, you know. Neat. And so then when did you uh, when did you start exploring college positions and how did how did the Hendrix gig come about for yeah. you? Well, I did that for like uh, I had always been exploring college positions, keeping my eye on what was open and whatnot. And okay. I knew after I had been teaching um, these uh, these community arts center gigs and have the adjunct gig for like a year and a half or so that I was really ready because mm-hmm. all these um, jobs, they say, you know, teaching experience outside of your, your TA ship. Right. And so I had the teaching experience done and, um, you know, and I was doing pretty well in my gallery. You know, I, I realized that you can't be an academic without being a professional, mm-hmm. you know, you, so I had, I had, um, you know, some, my first show at this place in, uh, in Kent, Connecticut was, uh, was sort of a sellout show, right? Told a bunch of paintings. I was really, really happy. You know, it wasn't enough that I was like going to quit work for sure, but it, I started getting a real reputation. Mm-hmm. And I knew that, you know, you need, you can't just get an academic position without having, you know, professional standing, mm-hmm. right? Which is, you know, gallery shows basically. And so I was doing that. The CAA cycled around to New York again, and I applied for a bunch of positions. I sent, you know, that time you got to put together your slides. It's a ton of money. It's a huge hassle. You have to label each slide, you know, by hand and everything. But I mailed out, you know, tons of these packets. I got a, I got like three or four interviews, right? So I was really happy just to have the interviews. And I was at the conference, and at that time they were, um, they did this thing where colleges that were hiring at conferences that were that were interested in talking to people at the conference beyond their pre-interviews might put out a cardboard box and say, throw your packet in here. And mm-hmm. if we have time and we're interested, you know, we'll talk to you. So Hendrix was really, I just looked at the job description, you know, it seemed to fit me. I knew nothing about Hendrix whatsoever. You know, I just said, sounds good. And I applied. Right. And so I was getting an interview and uh, the interview went really, really well. You know, it was just like professor uh, Miller, Rod Miller, who's here today. Uh-huh. And um, Eric Makastad, former retired sculpture teacher interviewed me and it just went really really well and here you are 20 years later yeah yeah wow that's that's the truth yeah so describe what was the department like 20 years ago when you started what kinds of uh, students were coming through the program what were you teaching who else was there besides uh rod and eric Don Marr, who I was replacing, was was retiring, so he was there as an adjunct for like a first my first year, I guess. We were in Trishman, where the dance studio is now. Okay. And and poor Eric was in the basement of Trishman. He had the most he had the most primitive facilities one could possibly imagine. Yeah. And and um. And w- w- there was a discussion, you know, sort of right away with raising some money for a new facility. It was clear that, okay. we, you know, Hendrix needed a new facility. And so the, before I was even actually working the summer, you know, before I came down for the fall semester, they they flew me down for some sort of fundraising uh, dinners that they were having. And the department and development, of course, and the president were all um, working on raising some money for a new art complex. Okay. So, so um you know, that's a long story, but also at the, which was successful, obviously, but 
one of the things the art department was organized in a way that I felt was really out of date. Mm-hmm. And, and that um, there was no real senior show. The, okay. senior, the senior show was, um, okay, people graduating an art major put up a selection of work from their four years at Hendrix. Mm. And so it was sort of a hodgepodge, right? Mm-hmm. And and students really didn't get the um, the uh, the pressure cooker environment, the ambition, the demand to really produce a coherent, consistent, unique body of work of their own, right? Okay. And so as a group, which was all I, you know, when I was educated, that's what we did, right? Especially in graduate school. So we um, we reorg we rewrote the major. Hendrix was transitioning from a trimester to a semester program, mm-hmm. which was great. So we rewrote the entire major, Rod, Eric, and myself, and, um, you know, instituted a senior, a senior art thesis set of classes where students would put up their, you know, their sort of their body of work for their show, which was a big, big change. It's so really up the ambition of what was expected of students and would prepare them, you know, hopefully for for graduate school, you know, even though people are not getting BFAs, our mm-hmm. aim was that they could go on and get an MFA if they had gone through what we, you know, through this kind of rigorous process. And we have had a lot of people go on and get MFAs, you know, directly from the BA degree at Hendricks. And so that redesign that you guys did early in your time here at yeah. Hendricks, is that kind of that that holds true? What has what else has developed? Have there been other uh, kind of what else has happened in the evolution yeah. of the program in your time here? Well, that that portion of it has gotten much better. We've reworked it. We've made it more rigorous. We've you know done a lot with that. But we've hired some people since then, which mm-hmm. broadened the program, which really needed to happen. You know, we had at the time we had a sculptor and a painter, and I was teaching printmaking, and we had an art historian. And so the first thing we did, and we had an we had an adjunct teaching photography. First thing we did was hire a professional, uh, you know, a full time photographer, right, Maxine okay. Payne, and she came over from UCA, excellent photographer, excellent professor. So she broadened the broadened the uh, the department quite a bit. So we were like, we need to broaden the department. And then the next thing that we did was we divided my job into two, painting drawing and printmaking became, I just became painting and drawing. And then we hired somebody to do printmaking. Right. Okay. And she also, she also did drawing too. That's professor Melissa Gill. Who's fantastic. That's uh, so we expanded the art department. We built the new facilities, which mm-hmm. are great. And, um, you know, other than some changes around the edges of things, you know, we've worked, uh, we've tried to be consistent in bringing students on a, a trip. I used to bring back when my parents had a house in Chicago, I used to drive students to Chicago. We used to at my parents' house and see the art world in Chicago. And subsequent years, Rod Miller took over that aspect and, and got grants to take students to New York. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and uh, professors uh, Payne and Gill take students on conferences in, uh, in photography and printmaking. So we, we try and do that as much as possible, although there's not really an ongoing funding mechanism for that so we constantly sort of raise money for that and and mm-hmm. make it work of course we're not doing that now because of the pandemic sure sure so what do you see for the next 20 years for the art department <sighs> got to get past these first uh this next semester i think you know if we can make it to the fall <laughs> I think we'll be doing pretty good yeah yeah, um, yeah. you know i really don't know eric makastad retired right 
the school is not in a position to just replace him right now with a full-time person. So that's a question. What's going to happen with that position? And are we going to, com- are we going to continue to compensate that for that with an adjunct? We have uh, Professor Andy Huss teaching mm-hmm. sculpture there. He's fantastic. He does a lot of uh, 3D printing. He's brought the sculpture technology sort of, he sort of updated the sculpture technology using some CAD design and uh, 3D printing and, and that. But he's an adjunct. He's not permanent. Are we going to turn, what are we going to, you know, we would hope that we could hire a permanent person for that, for that position. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say right now, given the pandemic and given the fact that uh, Professor Makastel retired, we're in discussion about what we want to do. Right, mm-hmm. how we want some of the ideas being batted around. Our um, professors Gill and Payne are very interested in this idea of making a more multidisciplinary department, right? Which is something that a lot of places do. We are multidisciplinary in our senior studies. You know, students can do anything, but there's a way to reorganize the departments so that all of us would teach um, more, would teach the overlap between media, right? That's that's an issue that we could discuss. I myself am very interested in bringing more um, more digital work into the uh, into the department. I taught myself how to do digital art. I never studied a, a jot of digital art in, in in a formal way in any of my degrees, but I taught myself how to do digital drawing using the iPad. It's part of my practice now. I've hmm. I've just had a permanent course approved in um, called digital drawing, intermediate and advanced, where students work with it. An iPad, and the thing that's great about iPads is is that um, they're touch sensitive, so you get the gesture mm. as opposed to the mouse, and they're portable, mm-hmm. so you can you can be outside of the studio. Back yeah. before the pandemic, we'd go to cafes, we'd go to the park, we'd go to you know different locations to do landscapes and interiors outside the classroom. And of course, that stuff is the native environment for it. Really, is social media, right? Mm-hmm. You can print it out, and it would be interesting. I would like to actually explore working in you know, uh, more traditional art media on top of a printed out digital drawing. I haven't done that, but uh, I do want to do that. I will do that. But also, you know, students can post their work in the native contemporary environment that everybody's Mm -hmm. accustomed to, which is social media, digital platforms. And they do that. And so that's, uh, you know, these are the discussions in, in printmaking and photography. They've incorporated digital work in in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a couple of roll printers. Photography's always had an overlap with. Well, we really believe in wet photography. We believe that students should learn the the dark room, and get serious skilled in that and skills in that and learn the alternative processes, alternative wet traditional processes. We also believe that they students should do digital work too. So mm-hmm. some of our seniors, you know print on the roll printer or, you know, do all kinds of uh, digital work. We have a sort of a mini lab for that. We have a separate digital lab with all the Macs for um, if you want to do a digital class. And Professor Gill does a lot of really cool stuff where students, you know, print work digitally initially on some kind of an image and then work over it with traditional mm-hmm. printmaking, which is sort of where it's at combining the, uh, the digital with the haptic haptic is the touch the fit the hand you know getting it in get you know the movement of your fingers or wrists or arms or whatever into the image so she's combining some things like that which um i think is really exciting and uh, yeah 
is cool. So tell me, uh, how has working with students, I mean, you've mentioned uh, kind of moving into exploring digital work. Um, did that come from your work with students? Or uh, w- what I'm wondering is, how have, how have students influenced the art that you are creating? Um, uh, well, as, a, as an artist, I'm, I'm kind of restless. I'm always learning new techniques. This past year, I, I never worked with ink. I'm teaching myself ink. I, you know, I was interested in digital just because I'm interested in digital. Brought mm-hmm. that to the students, and I'm going to bring the, the ink thing to the students in the future. But students, you know, teaching forces you to think, right? Forces you to think about this or that issue. What is drawing? What is painting? What makes it good? What makes it not good? How does it work? And so you're trying to communicate those ideas constantly. And so that just sort of generally, naturally feeds, you know, being, being thoughtful about uh, your process. And so there's, I'd say there's sort of a virtual, virtuous cycle there between, mm-hmm. you know, articulating, discussing, rethinking your ideas, that sort of teaching in and of itself. But specifically, um, I had this incredible uh, episode with some of my students. When I, I was trained as a basically a perceptual figure painter, you know, we work from the model and still life and whatnot, landscape. And um, when I went to graduate school, I taught myself to be a studio painter, which is a mm-hmm. person who doesn't work perceptually. I worked from drawings and I made up my images and I developed a, a, a whole sort of methodology of doing that, becoming a studio painter. It's very freeing and good to be a studio painter because you don't, you're not tied to what you see, right? You can paint anything. But I believed that students should learn to paint what they see and draw what they see. It's basic, you know, with your undergraduate degree, students should learn to draw what, paint what they see. So I taught that, developed a whole cycle of courses around that. And I did this advanced painting class. And in this advanced painting class, advanced studio courses at Hendricks are small, right? I had like five, six people in that class. And in that class, we would do one large painting or life-size figure painting that we worked on the whole semester. Mm. And and the students were saying, you know, Lopas, they always call me Lopas, right? Um, <laughs> why don't you do a painting alongside us, right? And I was kind of like, I was kind of intimidated by that, you know? I, I didn't want to be, <laughs> like have somebody looking over my shoulder while I'm painting. You know, I like to sort of <laughs> be painting on my own. But, you know, I was younger then, but they prevailed on me. They persuaded me to do a painting. And I uh-huh. doubly was not a perceptual painter anymore. I hadn't painted a figure from life in years at that point. It's like, oh, am I even going to be able to do this? You know? Yeah. And so, so I did that, right? And, um, and it, it kind of destroyed my work. I mean, I was, wow. I, I, would, I would go and um, I would go, I would teach the class. I'd be painting this painting in the class with this figure. And then I would go into my studio where I would try and invent colors, mm-hmm. right? And then I would like invent the colors, say, well, you know, maybe it's a slightly different shade or, you know, really when you look at a wall, there's a whole progression from blues to reds to greens. It's very subtle. And I tried to invent that stuff in my, uh, in my painting and it just, it just didn't work. Hmm. It just did not work. I realized something I think that was kind of, that I knew intellectually, but I actually realized, you know, in sort of a more direct way that mm-hmm. nature is, is much more complicated, you know, nature writ large is much more complicated than we are. It's much smarter. It has much more diversity. It has, it has just so much more to it than, Mm -hmm. than we do as people. So, so, um, 
you know, I realized sort of my inadequacy to invent things and that, and that nature could give you so much more, right? You could paint a single light on a single wall for days. There's just so much, so much variation in it. Right. And so I became, I went back to painting perceptually based on that course, you know, from direct observation and I totally reinvented myself. I, I, it destroyed my relationship with a very good gallery that I had mm -hmm. in, um, in Atlanta. Actually, no, I, I misspoke. That happened a little bit earlier than that, but I had had some, I lost that gallery a little bit earlier than that, which is, I guess, another story, but I had had, I developed a reputation, you know, some sales, some success, some galleries based on this method of working in the studio. And then when I abandoned it, it was like back to square one. You know, yeah. your audience does not like to see something different. Huh. Like, oh, I mean, this is a whole other thing. You know, they see one thing and then the next show they see something different. It doesn't matter how good the next thing is. They want you to be the same. So, yeah. that, you know, you buy a Ford this year, you want to buy a Ford next year, right? It's just kind of like, should be a Ford. So it's anti-creativity and pro-market, which, mm. which wasn't my thing, right? So, you know, I had to sort of, you know, reach out again and find opportunities to show based on my new, my new way my, my, the way my paintings look different than they did before. Mm. What an interesting experience. Thank you for sharing that have yeah. you have there been other times when you have had to kind of start from square one and and reinvent and you know kind of share with the world who you are and as a yeah i've i've done it i've done it several times i do it less now i mm -hmm. try to be more more gradual about it but i can't help myself from change from changing sure um, my first show in connecticut i mean this is the story it's sort of the story of my career really i had a right out of Right out of graduate school, I got this show in Connecticut. I um, got this gallery, and um, I, like I mentioned before, it was like a nearly sellout show. Right? It was great. It was fantastic. You know, people, people like you know were seeking me out, and then, and then you know, my next show was different. Right? I at that time in my life, you know, it was like I was like 30, 30, 31 or something. I was going through so much things. My next show was different. And, you know, I didn't sell anything, huh. nothing. Right. And to this day, if I go back to Connecticut, people talk about that initial show. Wow. I mean, how many years ago was it? So, you know, it's just like people have a certain, get a certain idea. You know, it could mm -hmm. be that, could be that that, sh that work was, you know, maybe better than the subsequent work, but it was work that I couldn't continue to do because I grew as a human being and as an artist. Right. So it's, it's a real struggle as an artist to, um, you know, to keep evolving and to keep it, stay in touch with an audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that happened. So I, I eventually, I eventually lost that gallery based on that. And then, you know, then I did it again in Atlanta, you know, it just, it just goes on. So Matthew, we are recording this conversation in late 2020 yeah, uh, it's a year that has been unusual in many ways and tumultuous yeah. on many fronts. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering if you've had a chance to kind of reflect on this year and uh, the impact that it might have had on your art. Are you painting more or less? Are you exploring different themes? Has your style changed? What are you, What are you experiencing as an artist this year? Well, the pandemic 
definitely has affected my life, which is in sub, which is in turn affected my my work, and also sure. I'm on sabbatical right now, mm-hmm. so so I've had a lot more time, right? Um, the work that I've done over the last I don't know period of time, seven or eight years, has always been the work that I can do that fits into where I am. I got mm-hmm. you know after that painting advanced painting class, I started painting in the studio with students working on something, and sometimes those would develop into a painting that I might like or keep, right? My demonstration pieces became pieces sometimes. And um, so I would work in the studio with uh, students in the classroom. My, my, I have a daughter, and I would I'd take her around a lot before the pandemic. I was always driving her somewhere, right? I'd have to drop her at religious school on Sunday mornings. I'd have to take her to, you know, violin or whatever, and I'd have sort of time to kill. During that time, I would set up a painting wherever I am and work on a painting. Every Sunday, I'm, I'm, I'm at, I'm at, I'm at uh, Little Rock between 9 and 12. So I'd have like a Sunday painting go that, going on that I would work, work on for, for a long time. I had some of those things that I was working on that stopped because the pandemic happened, right? I was hoping to finish them on my sabbatical, but I couldn't because I'm homeschooling my daughter, right? I'm not going out. So I'm painting at home pretty much exclusively right now. So that, you know, the pandemic has really changed that. And it's been kind of painful to see these couple of paintings that I was really happy with are probably never going to be finished. I mean, I worked Mm -hmm. on those things for months, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe I can show them eventually as sketches, maybe next fall. I don't know. But um, so the pandemic affected me like that. Also, one amazing thing is... um, well, I never did a Zoom before the pandemic, right? I yeah. did a couple of a couple of Skypes, you know, and I started Zooming for with family, Zooming with my mother, and mm-hmm. uh, I said, you know what, I'd like to start. And then some of my I taught one summer, and some of my students from Pennsylvania, where I taught at Mount Gretna School of Art, they said we're going to start a Zoom drawing group, huh. where we all get together. They're all over the country, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're going to get together once a week, and we're just going to draw each other on Zoom. And so we started doing that. It's incredibly awkward uh-huh. and incredibly sort of different and incredibly difficult. My drawings are really not very good. And then I started getting a little better at it. I bought mm-hmm. a bunch of different materials. Um, I set up a, a Zoom group with uh, some friends of mine. My cousin Deborah Howard is an artist and some graduates, some Hendrix Art Department graduates. And we have a little group of people going where we meet once a week. And I've really learned how to draw on the Zoom with an iPad. It's it's oh. a very you know just I draw with a with marker, which was uh-huh. a material I, I never used before. I taught myself how to use marker. Marker's really cool, and um, and I was never good at doing portraits. Mm-hmm. Never good. I was always a landscape interior painter. I was never good at doing portraits, but on Zoom you do portraits, right? And so I've actually just a, just a couple of days ago I realized I'm capturing a likeness and this is really that person and it's really huh. not that hard. And I've learned from from being on Zoom, it's kind of an interesting combination of being really intimate but really uh-huh. distant, right? Sure. But really distant at the same time. If you sit, if you want to get someone to sit for a portrait, you have to be in that space with them. They have to give you their time. They have to be still, and you're like you're like with this person. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a little intimidating. Right. And I, some people are good at that. I was never good at that. And so on Zoom, it's kind of like you're not intimidated because they're just on the screen. Right. Uh-huh. And, and, 
and I just, uh, it's, I think I might actually become someone who does portraits, right? Which would be very different for me. And I also stopped worrying about people moving. You mm. know, people, people move a little bit. What, you know, the way we set these things up is you have, say, five people there and you just pick whoever you want to draw, right? Mm -hmm. Or I did a bunch of drawings sort of of the iPad with a bunch of little heads on them, you know, sort of still life with uh, those images. And it's been, it's felt very contemporary, very interesting. So the pandemic on that level has been, you know, interesting to me. That's really fascinating. Thanks. So that's, that's been fun. I was going to ask about the, uh, the panoramic work that you started doing a few years ago. Are you still, yeah. still doing that or? Yeah. Um, I basically paint everything you can see from a single point, mm -hmm. which is different than say viewfinder based images. If you find you look through a small slice of a perceptual reality. And when you start looking around you at the world, things become very complicated and interesting. So that's kind of a, something that I've really explored a lot and have, has enabled me to learn a lot. And uh, I'm, yeah, I'm definitely still doing it. I've developed this technique recently where I start with a small painting of, say, a slice of reality, you know, like a, like a viewfinder painting. And then I just sort of add to it. Like if it's a 9 by 12, I'll take another piece of 9 by 12 and add it up in the corner and it becomes not a rectangle. And then I end up adding like six or seven pieces and it becomes a, a large painting of a really, really, really odd shape. They're all like not rectangles. They're all wacky, strange shapes. So they sort of bend around a lot. And so that's, that's what I'm doing now. Yeah. And I'm, so that's, this is all the sabbatical work that I'm doing now is all sort of gearing towards a show that I'm going to have in, uh, in Little Rock in the spring the time isn't set but it's going to be at uh boswell moreau fine art gallery and sometime in the spring and i don't think it i don't think it'll be a one-person show i think it'll be a two-person show which i think is good they've got a new beautiful space and and um and there's a few paintings i did one big one that's about how big is it? it's like 70 inches wide and it's um i i gotta say i'm really happy with this my best painting ever i brought together all these different ideas that I've been working on for a long time and, and did this interior painting. So, I'm, and it's of course a wacky shape, you know, it's like wide and skinny and bulbous and curvy. Huh. Is it a, a particular space you can, you can share with us now? Yeah. Is it it's, it's, a, it's my, it's my interior space of my, my house. I'm painting it. Okay. It's basically, I'm sitting at the dining room table, looking around the house and see my daughter in the kitchen. You know, I can look out the back, Door, my dog sat on my foot. I put him in it, you know, and huh. uh, so all the all the spaces around the around the house. You can all, I post all this stuff on Instagram. You can see it. What is your Instagram handle? Uh, I think it's just Matt Lopas, Matthew Lopas. If you just search my name, okay. And you have a website. Instagram is basically my website. Okay. I do a Facebook page called Painting Three Hundred and Sixty Contemporary Variations of the Painted Panorama where I include a lot of work by people that, that do this sort of thing, turning and painting and painting an extremely wide field of view. Right. And there's some, there's some very cool people there. There's a lot more people out there than you might think that do this sort of thing. Yeah. Huh. All right. So the Facebook is 360 and then painting, yeah. Matthew Lopas or Matt Lopas for the Instagram. Yeah. If you just search my name, Matthew Lopas, it'll come up on Instagram. So when you're not painting and you're not teaching, 
what are you doing? Are you practicing Tai Chi still? Are you, no. what, what, what are you into? <laughs> I swim every morning. I, I get up, you know, after a certain point, I uh, decided to go back to swimming. I'm, I'm really into it. I swim five days a week, you know, in the morning nice. from like seven to eight. And then, um, you know, I'm working a lot with my daughter right now and I'm doing a, a lot of homeowner projects. I think the whole yeah. world is doing homeowner projects. <laughs> this I, is the time. I mean, I transformed my entire. I've got about two acres. It was overgrown and deeply wooded. I got on my chainsaw, you know, cut down a bunch of trees. And then I realized it was just too much. Yeah. I killed myself doing that. I hired a guy with a, uh, a bulldozer mm-hmm. and uh, I bought a riding lawnmower. I was always like, never going to do that, <laughs> you know, but, you know, so I've really transformed my whole property working wow. on it. We got That's chickens. That's satisfying. Oh, you know? chickens. How fun. <laughs> yeah. I used That's to have chickens. Fun. Yeah, they're fun. We get eggs, you know? Yeah. So what kind of chickens do you have? You know, I don't know what kind they are. There's two brown ones <laughs> and one very aggressive male that's big and kind of black and white. And so do I Do they I have know, names? They had names, but we couldn't we couldn't tell the difference between all the brown ones. Uh-huh. So my da- my daughter had we lost a few, I got to say. Uh. And my my daughter named the two brown ones Chicken and Tender. <laughs> <laughs> and and the the big one is Danny DeVito. Okay, I like it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that works. That's a good chicken name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for spending time with us today. This has been really fun. Yes, I've my enjoyed pleasure. getting to know you. Thank you. Thanks for thank sharing you. your stories with us and uh, and and being part of Whamacast. I've, yeah, I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you for joining Whamacast, produced by the Wingate Museum of Art at Hendricks College. Our engineer is Megan Stevenson. Graphics by Amanda Cheatham and research support from Rebecca Jolly. Our theme music was written by Hendricks student Cameron Minor and performed by Cameron Minor, Scott Minor, Danielle Kuntz, and Campbell Cook. All rights reserved by Hendricks College. Have a great day. <laughs>